Thank you, Andy. Somebody get Andy some Gatorade. That was a, a long passage, so thank you very much for that. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Rob Kane. I am the lead pastor here um, at Citizens Church. And um, if we haven't already met, I would love to, to chat with any of you. We do have food in the back, so we kind of like to use that as an opportunity for after the service just to grab a, a bite to eat and sit at the table, sit at the chair, whatever, just hang out, chat, use it as an excuse to get to know one another. So if I haven't met you, please um, just come up to me, and I would love to chat with you, figure out how you heard about citizens and hear your story. Um, but I'm going to open us with a, a story that I believe is fictional. Um, who knows? Maybe it's true. Who knows these days? But it's, about a, it's a story about a kindergarten teacher, and this kindergarten teacher was... She encouraged her students to go ahead and start drawing kind of an artwork session. And as she would normally do, she'd walk around the classroom, checking in on each student. What are you drawing? All oh, that looks, looks beautiful, that kind of thing. And she came up to one girl who was working very dil- diligently. And she asked, what is it that you're, that you're drawing? And she said, oh, I'm, I'm drawing God. And the teacher, um, thinking of a couple of verses, said, well, that's interesting. No, no one knows what God looks like. And the little girl immediately, slightly annoyed, looked up from her drawing and said, well, they will in a minute. <laughs> and for us, it's so true that, that we want to know, yes, what God looks like. But I would submit to you that I think, I think we also want to know more than just what his appearance is. We want to know who he is. We want to know who God is. There's all kinds of religions throughout the world. 83% of the world is involved in some form of religion. So there's some form, some at least slight desire to know who God is. And this morning, as we look at this passage, I would say that Jesus provides signs, which Andy just read about. He provides these signs so that we may clearly understand who he is. Jesus provides signs so that we may clearly understand who he is. And as we go through this, we are still in Mark. We've been trying to go passage by passage, and we started in chapter 1. There's 16 chapters in the book of Mark, so you can see we're in chapter 8. We're about halfway. So some of you are like, praise Jesus. We need to, <laughs> we need to get through this thing. Others of you are like, oh man, maybe less of you about that. But anyways, we are about halfway through, and the consistent theme that we've been seeing is that it's God restoring his wayward people. God restoring his wayward people to himself. And so the passage that we're in, if the Lord helps me speak clearly, then Lord willing, we will see the great patience that God has had with us. It will equip us to then have more patience with others, And it will help us gain greater clarity around who Jesus really is. And so, again, we are in Mark. That's in the New Testament. So if you have your Bible, it's about three-fourths of the way through. Um, You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you've gotten to Luke and John, you've gone too far, come back. Uh, But we are in Mark. Um, And last week I mentioned that we have been seeing almost a symmetry of events. right? So in chapters 6 and 7, we saw a feeding of a multitude. We saw them crossing the lake, a dispute with the Pharisees, a discussion about bread. We saw a healing, and we saw a confession of faith. And then we get to chapter 8, and now that we're in chapter 8, we're seeing all, all these things again. 
we're seeing a feeding of a multitude. We saw initially the 5,000 and then the 4,000. And we see them crossing the lake again. Now we see a dispute with the Pharisees. We see a discussion about bread. We see a healing and we see a confession of faith. And so there's this twofold thing happening where we see it once. And then it's like, hey, let's rewind. But we're not actually rewinding. We're just kind of saying it from, we're giving similar stories. We're kind of repeating some of the similar principles of what happened so that we can emphasize the point of what's going on. And so today in your bulletins, you'll see we have four points. We see that there are signs refused, signs remembered, a sign provided, and the sign's purpose. Signs refused, remembered, provided, and their purpose. So I will pray, and then we'll start with that first point. Father, we come before you grateful that you love us, that you provide for us, that you see our need and you step into it. We're grateful for your word, and now as we gather around it, we pray for clarity. With me speaking, Holy Spirit, help me speak clearly, but also for everyone listening. We ask that you would provide clarity as to what your word says. Lord, where I am faithful in saying what your word says, we pray that that would take root. Where I miss the mark in my humanity, Holy Spirit, provide clarity for those listening. Provide wisdom. We pray that the truthfulness of your word would be exalted. We pray that in in so doing that, that Jesus would be further known, that he would be more clear. We pray for Scarlet City Church here in Clintonville, that they would make Jesus known this morning, that Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin would do the same, Providence Baptist Church here in Westerville, and Sojourn Church in Louisville, a supporting church. Lord, we do pray that they would continue to proclaim the gospel, and we're grateful for partners in the gospel. God, we also pray for those who are unreached, those who have never heard the gospel, and that don't even have access to it. Think of the Banji people in Nigeria, where there's likely no Christian among them. Lord, we pray that you would send missionaries, that they would be risen up even in this congregation, Lord. We pray that you would raise up people to take the gospel to those who are furthest from it. Pray that you would send teachers, that the Banji people would hunger for truth. And Lord, where they are in northern Nigeria, as there's a lot of violence and tumult, Lord, we do pray for peace. And now as we look at this passage, we ask that you would give us peace as we gain clarity into who Jesus is. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right. So look in verse 11, if you would. That's where we started. But we see right away the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus. So if you've been with us for any period of time, you've recognized that the Pharisees are <clears throat> consistent foes to Jesus. In one instance, they even traveled over 90 miles just to argue with him. And so they are dead set on attacking Jesus' ministry and the things that he is doing. And we see here, we come right back to another similar instance where the Pharisees and him began to argue. And what happens? The Pharisees demand a sign. Now, something to be aware of is that Jesus is not 
anti-sign. Okay, he's provided lots of signs. As we've marched through Mark, just the signs that we've seen in Mark, we've seen him heal an unclean spirit. Simon's mother-in-law, he healed a leper, healed a paralytic in chapter 2, he healed a withered hand, he calmed a storm, so even the, the winds and the storm and nature obey him. He healed a demoniac, a man with thousands of demons inside of him, a bleeding woman who was bleeding for years and years and years, he healed Jairus' daughter, he fed the 5,000 people that were primarily a Jewish crowd, and he fed the 4,000 people, we went over that last week, primarily a Gentile crowd. He walked on water, healed the sick in Gennesaret, healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, and healed the deaf, as Luke um, preached on just a few weeks ago. He did a tremendous job pointing out how Jesus meets people where they are. And so we see that Jesus is not anti-sign. He's provided tons of signs, and some of them have been right in front of the Pharisees. And so now when, when they say, hey, give us a sign to show us who you are, It's almost as if they're saying, like, hey, perform for us. Dance. Let's see you do this thing that will affirm the message. And what does he say? He says, truly I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. In Matthew's version of this event, he says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. So what's the sign of Jonah? Those of you who aren't familiar, Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, and he was in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights, and he was spit out. And so Jesus says in verse 40 of Matthew 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is saying, look, you want a sign? It's already been given for you. This prophet that you so admire, Pharisees were all about knowing the law and knowing the Old Testament. He says, this prophet that you so admire, Jonah, look at him. He's your sign. Pay close attention to what happened with Jonah, and you'll understand who I am. And he even gives them the explanation, just as Jonah on the third day was spit out. I'm going to be spit out on the third day from the earth. So he's already explaining it for them. Jesus is not there to perform at any given moment when they ask him to. If the faith... His whole ministry is about him coming, saying who he is, and saying, by faith alone, you can be restored to God. We've talked about the consistent theme in Mark, God restoring his wayward people, primarily through the person work of Jesus Christ. So his entire ministry is around you being restored to God through faith alone. As the Pharisees demand a sign, Jesus is picking up on what they're doing. He says, if you are requiring a sign, then you're not living by faith. You're trying to have proof anytime you have the slightest inconsistent thought. And so Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, did they want a sign? His whole life and ministry signified his identity. No sign would ever convince such hard-hearted men. Therefore, none would be given. They demanded signs. Jesus showed compassion. If they did not recognize that this was the way God was revealing himself in Jesus, then they must remain in their blindness. Jesus is showing compassion to people who are sick, people who are far from God, people who are identified as sinners, and the Pharisees are not recognizing that it is God showing compassion to his people. We said last week that 
compassion was the attribute of Christ that is most attributed to him throughout the scriptures. If you read, compassion is one that gets most attributed to him. God is showing compassion to his wayward people. And if the Pharisees aren't able to see that, then Ferguson here says that they must remain in their blindness because it's so apparent in Jesus' ministry. And so today, for us, as we go about our day-to-day, as we head into work on Tuesday, hopefully you have Memorial Day off, but as we head into work on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, whenever you head back, the things that you're wrestling with, are you demanding a sign from Jesus to have peace about those things? Or are you trusting what he has already done in your life? Is there a chance that perhaps you've overlooked signs that he's already done? He told the Pharisees, look, signs have already been done. He said, actually, let's go to the prophets that you so admire. You don't believe the things I'm doing? Let's go to the prophet that you so admire, Jonah. Look at that. There's your sign. And then watch my ministry. Watch my life. I will be spit out of the grave on the third day. Jesus is pointing back to signs that have already taken place. Is there a chance that, like the Pharisees, that us in our moments of wrestling have overlooked some of the signs that Jesus has already done in our lives? Edward Schweizer says this. He says, Faith comes when one steps into the boat with Jesus and does not prefer to remain safely on the shore. Are you willing to take steps of faith, even when that's uncomfortable? Because I promise you, walking with Jesus is not the most comfortable thing you can do on this this earth. There will be tensions, there will be uncomfort, discomfort all over the place. Jesus says that they hated me, they'll hate you also. So this idea that you can come to Christ and life's going to be easy, that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, false gospel. It's going to be uncomfortable. Taking steps of faith is not easy. Now, clarification. What that does not mean is have blind faith. Okay, so we're not saying that I'll just have blind faith. What we're saying is that look at what Christ has done. Consider it. Gain understanding. In fact, Jesus even calls his disciples to consider what has already taken place by remembering previous signs. Because if we're honest, we, we forget so easily. Like, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. Like we, we forget so easily what God has already done in our lives. And so now we see in our second point here, signs remembered. Jesus calls his disciples to remember what has been done. But before we even get there, look at verse 14 and 15. We read, The disciples had forgotten to take bread, and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So this leaven of the Pharisees, this leaven of Herod. What is this? Commentators will point out that this leaven that Jesus is talking about is the leaven of unbelief. So leaven was this thing that you'd put in bread and help the bread rise up. You just had to put a little bit of it and it would impact the entire loaf. And so he's saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. So this idea, just a little bit of unbelief can creep in and make a big impact. And he's bringing this up because the disciples had already forgotten what Jesus had done. Look in verse 16. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Okay, so we just read 
earlier, Jesus fed 4,000 people. And previously, we read that Jesus fed 5,000 men, not including women and children, but he also fed them, so it was likely more like 10 to 15,000. So we're looking bare minimum. Jesus fed 9,000 people with a lunchbox worth of food. And the disciples are on the boat, 12 of them, worried about them only have brought one loaf of bread. Like, what are we going to do? Where are we going to get bread? We have no idea. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? I just fed 9,000 people with a small amount of bread. And you're on the boat with me. You saw both of these things happen. And you're wondering about how much bread you have. You're worried about that? That's going to be the last thing that you're worried about. And yet they have forgotten so quickly. And Jesus, I'm trying to put myself like in his shoes. Of course I can't, but I'm just trying to think his mental space here. He's got to be so exhausted. Like all the miracles that we just read about, the disciples were there. They saw him. Not to mention the 5,000 and the 4,000 feeding with bread. And they're in the boat right next to him, concerned that they don't have enough bread. And so he says in verse 17, aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? So Jesus starts there a series of questions as he's asking the disciples. He asks if they have hardened hearts. He asks if they have ears that don't hear or eyes that don't see. And it's interesting to note that those questions that he's asking are things that they've already either dealt with or are about to deal with. So the hardened hearts, the Pharisees right there at the beginning of that passage that we're in, they were just described as having hardened hearts. So he's like, do you guys, do you guys also have hardened hearts? Are you like the Pharisees? I've just done all these things to show that you don't have to worry about bread. And yet their unbelief is creeping in. So he asked, do you have hardened hearts? Similar to the Pharisees in verses 11 and 13. He says, do you have ears that don't hear? Similar to the deaf man from a couple weeks ago as we were looking at um, chapter 7. And he says, do you have eyes that don't see? And his eyes that don't see, that's what we're getting ready to read about. So we see these three categories. Jesus is saying, are you in these categories? And so he recalls these two signs. Recalls the feeding of the 5,000, the Jewish crowd, where there are 12 baskets full taken up. He says, when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets were taken up? And they say, 12. He says, okay. When I fed the 4,000, how many baskets full were taken up from the Gentile crowd? They say, seven. And he says, don't you understand? He's pointing out these two feedings, which further, last week we kind of mentioned that some commentators will say that the feeding of the 4,000 is just a rehashing of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus right here is bringing up both instances. And so it's further evidence that these were two separate events. But Jesus says, okay, fed the Jewish crowd. How many baskets full? 12. Okay, some red flags. 12 signifies 12 tribes of Israel. They should know that. And then I fed the 4,000. How many baskets full? Seven. Okay, it should be number of completion completion of the gospel, both Jew and Gentile, to be saved. And Jesus is like, okay, Jewish, 12, Gentile, 7. Don't you understand? And the disciples still don't. It's like, it's like Daniel and I have been to Washington, D.C. We'd love to take our, our girls there sometime. But it would be like, hey, guess what? We're going to Washington, D.C. And we're going 
to a big white house. Washington, D.C., big white house. Where do you think we're going? Think we're going to go see where the president? You know, like Jesus, like, don't you understand? Don't you get it? He's trying to spell it out for him, essentially, and they're not quite getting it. And they're Jesus here. It says he sighs. It just seems that he is finally just exhausted. But, but notice, even in his exhaustion, Jesus is so patient with us. His disciples were there for every single one of those miracles. And yet Jesus is still patient. He still patiently tries to take them by the hand and show them what's happening. He never throws his arm up and says, okay, like I'm getting a new 12. You guys clearly are not cut out for this. And he, no, he, he's patient. He consistently helps them understand. But the d- disciples are chastised, but they're not chastised for their unbelief. They're chastised for not understanding. See, we are in a, in a religion that speaks to gaining understanding. The scriptures say pursue it. It's like furnishing a house. That's what it says is that knowledge helps furnish that. It's essentially like furnishing a house. Like you can have this house, but you can have this faith, but how much better if you're able to furnish that house, if you're able to furnish that faith, seek the Lord, gain understanding. That's why we are serious about going passage by passage through books. That's why we're trying to um, expound on what's in the text because we think that if you are able to understand what's actually there, it will help your faith. It will strengthen it. And so we read the word. We pray the word. Charles Spurgeon, um, when asked what's more important, reading the word or praying, he says, what is more important, breathing in or breathing out? Both are pivotal to our spiritual life. And so the leaven of unbelief can creep in so easily if we are not careful. And so we are people who are called to spend time in the word. John Piper puts it this way. He says, no one becomes a strong Christian by speed reading through the Bible. No one becomes a strong Christian by speed reading through the Bible. Strong Christians linger over God's words, meditate on God's words, and send God's words back up to him in prayer. This unbelief is like leaven. It can so easily creep in, which is why we as forgetful creatures should make it a habit to be in the word of God. How many times have you read over a passage, maybe for the 20th time in your life, and you start to pick up on something new. Like just The scriptures are an inexhaustible well. Let's spend time in them because that is how our faith is strengthened. And so if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, first off, thank you for being here. But let Jesus' question be posed to you. Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand who Jesus is? If not, continue to wrestle. Continue to seek him in his word. Continue to to ask others around you. People would love to get together with you for coffee. Would love to read a book together with you. By all means, like, please ask questions. This is a safe place to ask questions. Find me afterward. I would be happy to, to talk with you about anything that you're wrestling through. I can't promise to have all the answers. But I will talk through it with you. Please find me. And then Christian, do you not yet understand who you are in Christ? 
Jesus, the perfect one, bringing all things to completion. He points out those two feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000, and he says, don't you understand that the bread of life has been given to the Jew and the Gentile? If you partake in this bread, you will never hunger again. You will be satisfied. And so now, as we move into verses 22 through 26, we see another sign provided. So Jesus refused to give the Pharisees a sign, and then we've got a sign happening. So there's a little bit of tension there. So he refused the Pharisees because they were demanding it. They were saying, dance for me. And so Jesus said, I'm just not going to do it. The sign's been given to you. I'm not your puppet. I'm not here to, to come at your beck and whim. I am the Lord. I am the Son of God. You don't get to tell me what to do. And so he does not provide them a sign. He points back to a previous sign. But now the disciples, they go into Bethsaida with Christ, and we see a sign taking place. And so let's read verses 22 through 26. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So a little bit of background with Bethsaida. Bethsaida, for those who are looking closely, is the home to Philip, Andrew, and Peter. And Bethsaida was where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. It was also where Jesus walked on water. And so we see that some miracles have taken place here. However, Bethsaida is known for its unbelief. Um, So one, one commentary says, The Gospels portray the townspeople as fickle and narcissistic. Although they saw Jesus' miracles and received his blessings, most people did not believe in him. And we see in Matthew 11, Jesus say, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And he's saying, Woe to these cities for their unbelief. And so they are now going into Bethsaida, a place known for its unbelief, even after Jesus' miracles have taken place. And what do they do? They bring to him a blind man. So there's a little bit of, we're not totally believing, but we know at least you can heal people. So let's bring him this blind man. And so what does Jesus do? He takes this blind man by the hand. They say, please just touch him. And so he takes him by the hand. He, he touches him, but he has, he's not healed yet. We see other instances where someone just touches Jesus and they're healed. Jesus is being intentional here. This is a very unique miracle. It's unlike any of the other ones that have taken place, which you could say about pretty much any miracle. However, this one is particularly unique because he does touch the, the man, but the man's not healed immediately. In fact, Jesus walks him out of the city, away from these people. You'd love to just know what they were talking about as he walks him out of the city. Like, yeah, these, they're not going to believe what's going on. Like, I'm going to take you away from them. I'm gonna, don't worry, I got you taken care of. But I don't know what, what the conversation was. Would love to know. But Jesus gently takes this man by the hand, walks him outside of the village, and he does something weird. He spits on his eyes, which reading that, like, what's going on there? And... I apologize ahead of time, but I just don't have a great answer for you. So 
sometimes we see things in, in the scriptures and we just don't have a great answer for it. I don't have a great answer for why he spit on his eyes. However, the extra weird thing is that after he does this, he says, can you see anything? And the man says, I, I can see a little bit, but it's a little fuzzy. People walking around kind of look like trees. And so Jesus has to give him a second touch. So he gives him a second touch, and then he's able to see. So why the second touch? It's not like this miracle was, was too difficult for Jesus to do. He has healed before. We've read that list of miracles that he's done. The, the wind and the seas obey him. He's healed a paralytic. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead to life. Of Jesus, it, healing a blind man is not too difficult for him, but there is something intentional taking place in this passage. In fact, it's foreshadowing what's getting ready to happen. And so we saw the Pharisees have hardness of heart. They're not able to see. They demand a sign. Jesus says, I'm not here to perform for you. Look to the sign of of Jonah. And then the disciples, as we have gone through this, then say, oh man, we're concerned. We have a little bit of unbelief about what we're going to eat. And Jesus says, don't you yet understand so we see the Pharisees not understanding with their hardness of heart. We see the disciples with a little bit of unbelief creeping in. So Jesus gently helps them understand. And this, this miracle is plugged right in there. This miracle that takes two touches. The first one he's able to see a little bit. And the second, second touch, he's able to see clearly. And it's indicative of what's happening here in verses 27 through 30. So this is a long passage. But I wanted to take this passage as long as it is so that we can see the the big picture of what's going on here in chapter 8. And so now we see the sign's purpose. So, this is a turning point in Mark's gospel. We're about halfway through the gospel, and here is a turning point. Let's read verses 27 through 30. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Up until now, the disciples had not confessed Jesus as Messiah but they're starting to understand. They're starting to see that he is who he says he is. They see that he is the Messiah, but they don't see it clearly. It's fuzzy. But as the gospel goes on, I said this is a turning point, as the gospel goes on, they're going to see clearer and clearer who Jesus is. The Pillar New Testament commentary puts it this way. The first healing touch for the disciples will come on the road to Caesarea Philippi, which we just read when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. The disciples will be no longer blind, but their vision will remain imperfect and blurred, for they do not understand the meaning of Messiahship. Only at the cross and resurrection will they, like the man at Bethsaida, see everything clearly. So we see what's happening here now. Jesus is saying, don't you understand, to the disciples in the boat, don't you understand what's happening? They don't. They don't understand. They're blind. They're spiritually blind. And then they enter Bethsaida, and Jesus heals a man with the first touch. 
you can see a little bit. The second touch, you can now see clearly. And then he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Saying, can you see? Do you understand yet? And they are beginning to see, but it's blurry. They recognize that he is the Messiah. These signs that Jesus is giving always point to a greater affirmation. The signs are wonderful, yes, but signs are given to affirm something greater than the sign. They are given to point us to God. They're given to affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, the only one who can remove sin, the only one who can restore wayward people. That's who Jesus is. And he wants the disciples, and he wants us today to see that clearly. If we want to know who God is, then we must look to what he has done, and we are privileged to have that. We have more access to that than anyone in the history of the world. We're all like that blind man. The question is, what stage are you in? Are you currently blind? Do you not see who Jesus is? Or maybe you've got an idea, you're starting to see things a little bit, but it's still kind of fuzzy. Or maybe you're seeing clearly and you recognize who Jesus is. Lord, Savior, King, Messiah. To see clearly is to agree with the scriptures that Jesus is the promised Savior and King. So Jesus provides these signs so that we may clearly understand who he is. The signs point to the affirmation of Jesus' message. And so today, some questions for us is, as Jesus is patient with his disciples, one commentator said that this re-emphasizing of similar things that have happened says, is to emphasize how dull the disciples are. Sometimes, if I'm honest, as I'm reading scripture, I can just feel dull. Like, I just don't quite understand what's going on. As Jesus, and as God has shown patience with us, are we showing patience with others? There are plenty of things that we could, that could frustrate us, especially, especially in, a, in a church plant. I mean, there's awkwardness all over the place. We just recognize that. And we own it. But are we being patient? And then today, um, we have Jesus' signs written down for us to read any Anytime. So are we getting into the Word? It's real simple. Are we carving out time in our days? And this is convicting even for me to say because as a guy who works full-time outside of the church, is also trying to prepare a sermon throughout the week, trying to do all these other things, sometimes it can feel convicting that I'm like, man, I'm just squeezing in time in the Word. Like, of anyone, I should be in the Word more than, than anyone else. And yet sometimes I feel guilty because it's sometimes difficult to get in the Word. So if you find it difficult to be in the Word, know that I'm right there with you. But we need to pursue that time. We need to seek after that time. And then are the signs that Jesus has provided sufficient? Or are you demanding more? Has the leaven of unbelief creeped in to where you're blinded to the things that God has already done in your life in the past and you're demanding more of Him? Because the greatest sign has been provided. The sign that the Son of God was hung on a cross so that the sin of all of those who have rebelled against him, us being in that camp, could have their sin paid for. 
His people's sin was paid for on the cross. And that's the one part. The other part is that the Father's wrath was satisfied. There's a real wrath of God against sin because he loves his people so much. If anybody tried to hurt one of my daughters, I would have wrath towards them because of how much I love my daughters. If anyone tried to do that to my wife or anyone that I love, like it would, there would be a wrath that comes out of me because I'd be so frustrated because I love that person. Same thing, if you love Jewish people, then you hate the Holocaust. If you love babies, then you hate abortion. There are, because of our love for something, we have a wrath or a hatred towards anything that tries to hurt it. And in the same way, God hates sin. The problem is that we are all marred with sin. And we all have to pay for that. Unless another has paid for us. And Christ on the cross is extending that. It says all those who would believe, all those who would repent of their sin, will be saved. Jesus' resurrection fulfilled the sign of Jonah. Jesus' resurrection secured victory over death. And Jesus' resurrection proves that his righteousness is sufficient so that we who would embrace him as Lord and Savior would receive his righteousness and we too would have victory over death. The sign that Jesus provides, the signs that Jesus provides are there for us to clearly understand who he is so that we may be able to see clearly and not with blurred vision. Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing signs through your son. Thank you for the sign of the Lord's Supper that we're getting ready to partake in. And we pray that we would see Jesus clearly in that, and that we would see you clearly as we go about our weeks. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.